0: I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, if you will, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 44. I'm going to depart today from the series on 1 Timothy. Genesis chapter 44. Joseph has been sold by his brothers and he now has risen to be the prime minister in Egypt and in the middle of that story we we find these words beginning in verse 1 of chapter 44 now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack then put my cup the silver one In the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, "'Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become your Lord's slaves.'" Very well, then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning from the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord ask his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. And he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, We cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then. Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. So ends the reading of God's word. Charles Coulson, in his book entitled Loving God, told about an Easter Sunday morning when he was to help with a worship service at the Delaware State Prison. The governor of the state had asked him to come and to speak. And on page 24 of Loving God, he says this, As I sat on the platform, waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned Cases argued and won, great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it was not my success that God had used to enable, to enable time to help those in this prison or in hundreds of others just like it. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. We naturally think the other way. We think that our successes and our abilities accomplished by our hands and by our effort and the sweat of our brow, that those are the things that God will use and he must use and that he will recognize us for them. We think that is what God's going to do. But we see in scriptures it's not until our natural self-confidence is broken that God begins to use us. He has a way of bringing us low and of humbling us and of breaking our pride to prepare us for service. We see that as a pattern. We see it all through the scriptures. You can look at Moses, Joshua, the Apostle Paul, David. He wants us to be something before he uses us to do something. Now, much of Genesis is about a character named Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons. And beginning in Genesis 37, some six chapters before what we read today, we have the account of the 12 sons of Jacob and how they ganged up on their younger brother, Joseph. And the reason they did so was something that's very damaging then and now, and that is favoritism on the part of their father that he had showed toward their brother. In Genesis 37, said that his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Joseph had a dream, And this didn't help things because the dream which he passed on to them indicated that one day they would bow down before him. And this caused them to hate him even more. One day the brothers are tending their father's livestock. They are ways from home. Jacob sends his son Joseph to look for them and to see how they're doing. As they see him coming from a long way off, they come up with a plan. They first discuss killing him. But then one of the brothers named Reuben, he says, well, let's not take his life. What benefit is there, meaning material benefit? Let's, uh, let's don't kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. And so they, they throw him in this pit. Reuben really planned to come back and, and rescue him later. And then after throwing him in the pit, they, they sit down to eat a meal, which is kind of hard-hearted when you think he was probably screaming for his life. I was listening the other day to a person describe some of the pits in that part of the world. He said, you may think it's just like a a hole that somebody could climb out of, but often they're like an inverted funnel. And so he could not have gotten out of that on his own. Well, they're sitting there eating, and this caravan comes near. And Judah, it's very important who said what. Judah says, what profit is there in killing Joseph? Let's sell him. So they pull him out of the pit. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And these people who are called Ishmaelites take him down, take Joseph down to Egypt. The sons return to their father. They lie to him saying Joseph must have been killed by some wild animal. And the father, named Jacob, is heartbroken. And he's heartbroken for the rest of his life, almost. It said he refused to be comforted, meaning there was nothing anybody could do to help him. Joseph is 17 years old when that happens. He ends up going down to Egypt, and you know the story. He's falsely accused. He's put in prison for some 13 years. 13 years. Amanda Knox was released from an Italian prison this week after being there for four years. Joseph was in prison 13 years. Now, at age 30, through the interpretation of some dreams, God brings Joseph to be the number two man in Egypt. Serves right under Pharaoh. So he's the Egyptian prime minister. There's food in Egypt. And there's not food back where his brothers live. So Jacob sends his sons. He sends the brothers down there to Egypt to buy some food. And they are brought before Joseph to buy the food. But this many years later, and we can only assume by languages and customs and hairstyles and everything else, they don't recognize him. He doesn't look the same but he recognizes them and he tells them to go back home and to bring back if they come back if they need more to bring their youngest brother and he keeps Simeon one of the brothers as a deposit they go back to Jacob they say what the prime minister wants them to do to bring their youngest brother Benjamin back Jacob obviously is reluctant and Reuben Reuben pleads with his father, and he promises to return him, but Jacob says, no, I'm not going to send him down there. Something may happen to him. But the famine continues. They run out of food, and so out of necessity, they're going to starve to death. Jacob says, go back to Egypt, buy more food. Judah reminds them once again, we can't go back without Benjamin. So at that time, Judah tells his father that he would be held responsible. So they return to Egypt. Joseph invites them to his house. He has a feast set before them. Now let's put ourselves in their shoes best we can this many years later at that time. These are hard-hearted businessmen when we first encounter them or chapters before now. And we see through this chapter that God is breaking them. He is bringing these brothers low. 22 years before, they had sold their brother into slavery, and they had not told a soul about it. There's no indication that any of them had passed on the information. They had gone about their business, and now God begins to break them. And he uses famine, and he uses physical want, and all these trials are just to soften these men up for what's about to happen. We know in the Bible the ground must be plowed before the seed is sown. But they have not yet abandoned their sin. There's been no confession. There's been no repentance. They have not broken down and admitted what they had done. They've not thrown themselves on the mercies of the covenant God. And at the place where we find them in the text today, they would have probably been congratulating themselves. How well things had gone. They had gone down there. They they had shown their brother... To the prime minister, uh, th- this was their, their, their second trip. The, the father had sent them. They, they were fearful at first, but now things had worked out. They're probably feeling pretty smug uh, as they are traveling back to Canaan. Uh, the prime minister, uh, who had demanded proof, had trusted their integrity. That their integrity had been proven to him, and things had worked out. Things had worked out. Their words had proven true, their money was good, Joseph had believed them, and so they were probably feeling pretty good, headed, headed back. They felt good about the money that, that had been accepted, too. After their first trip, they had found the money that they had paid was returned to them. And they had come back, and they had brought all the money with them, and they had paid. No one could accuse them of stealing or dishonesty. Their word was good. They were honest men, quote, unquote. So when the steward of Joseph's house catches up with them and accuses them of stealing, they're flabbergasted. They are flabbergasted. The very idea that they are dishonest, that they are not men of integrity. In verse 7, they say, "'Why does my Lord speak such things against us? "'If you find that cup in our sacks, "'we will be your slaves forever.'" They are staking their lives on their integrity and on their innocence. And so this tells us how confident they were. They were on the up and up. They trusted each other. It shows not only that they saw each of themselves as men of integrity, they trusted that their brothers were men of integrity as well. Can't you see the scene as the great steward searches through these bags on these donkeys? There stands Reuben. He's proud of his integrity. There's Judah. In Levi, they're confident that their word would be vindicated. There's Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun. And each of the sacks has gone through, one by one, until they finally get to the youngest, Benjamin. But who's worried now? He had not even been there the first time before. He had just come down so the prime minister could see him. Remember, the prime minister had demanded that the baby brother be brought there. Nobody's worried about Benjamin. He wouldn't do this. He would be the last person to do it. But when the last sack is opened, Benjamin's, one writer said perhaps the sun was shining and suddenly there's a glimmer. And they cannot believe it. No way! No way! Something is wrong here. Somebody is setting us up. Benjamin would never do this, the brothers are thinking. This doesn't make a lick of sense. So they are far more guilty, though, than they are admitting. They had been covering up something for 22 years. That's a long time. And God had tightened the screws, and he had tightened the screws, and finally he strikes like lightning. Bam, and he hits them right where they're most vulnerable. Judah's response, in fact, all of the responses here you see are just panic and disbelief. But in verse 16, notice if you just read it quickly, you miss it. But in verse 16, he says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. You see, it's two opposite saying things in the same statement, the same expression. He says they are innocent and that they are guilty. What does he mean? What does he mean by that? Because he's putting innocence and guilt side by side. The answer is that he's describing that they are innocent of the theft of the cup, but they are guilty of something far more serious. That's what he's saying with his statement. They're guilty of having sold their younger brother, their own flesh and blood, into slavery 22 years before, and now it has come to light, and they know it. They know what this is about. This is what has to happen, I think, if any of us come to saving faith in Christ. Apart from God probing our consciences, we are just like those brothers. Have you ever heard or seen where someone who is guilty of terrible sin confesses that sin on their own without God prompting them to do so? Have you ever heard of someone who says, maybe they came to you and said, something is really bothering me, I want to confess it? Men and women hide it, they hide it, and they hide it, and they hide it, and it typically is not until God brings to bear his probe that they will come out with it, and it usually takes God doing something somewhat drastic. We're the same way. We are guilty of the terrible sin against our elder brother Jesus, of our creator, of our rightful master. And until he comes and he breaks us, he tends, we tend to despise those claims until the Holy Spirit convicts us. And usually it takes some kind of life-altering situation. One of the privileges I have as a pastor, as an elder in this church, is to listen to testimonies of people who come to join the church. So I've heard hundreds through the years. And there's always a phenomenal variety of age and stage of life and what was happening, and, and, and some come to Christ with no one ever really talking to them, but just reading the Bible on their own. Others threw, threw a, had covenant families, and, and they were rebellious for, for sometimes decades, and then they, they come to faith. But in almost every case, regardless of the circumstances being being different there's typically some major life change that involves pain and something gets their attention and there's a level of where their life is broken and they lose self-confidence because of their own sin and that typically is there think how we are like these brothers were they men of their word so are we we don't lie were the brothers confident of their money yes so are we we pay our own way Were they confident of their integrity? Yes, we are. We have a good name in the community, don't you? You have a job. No one ever accused you of being a thief in the office. Let God take note of this. So we may think like they were thinking, well, yeah, I'm not perfect, but we're pretty good people compared to those around us. We may be innocent of some sins, but we're guilty of the sin of pride. Pride looks at ourselves and justifies ourselves. It's easy to cover it up. It's easy to look behind our good works or our religious integrity and think somehow or another God is pleased. F.B. Meyer was a, a Scottish preacher years ago. And he told the story of an old Scots woman who is illustrative of the way many of us think. And he wrote... A preacher of the gospel was once speaking to an old Scots woman who was commonly regarded as one of the most religiously devout and respectable people in that part of the country. And this pastor, this preacher, was impressing on her her need for Christ, and she was trusting in her religious deeds. At last, with tears in her eyes, she said, Oh, sir, I have never missed a Sabbath at the Kirk, and I have read my Bible every day. And I have prayed and done good deeds to my neighbors, and I have done all I knew I ought to do. And now do you mean to tell me that it was all for nothing? And the preacher answered, Well, you have to choose between trusting in these things and trusting in the redemption which God offers in Christ. You cannot have both. If you are content to part company with your own righteousness, the Lord will give you his. But if you cling to your Bible reading and Sabbath keeping and good deeds, then the Lord's righteousness cannot be yours. It was quite a spectacle, he said afterward, to see this old woman's face. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. For some time she sat in silence, her elbows on the table, her face was buried in her hands. There was a great struggle going on within her. At length the tears began to come from her eyes and lifting up her clasped hands to heaven, she cried, Oh my Lord, all these will go for nothing. And in a moment more, she cast herself on her knees and accepted the Lord as her Savior. And he wrote, It was when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack that she too was brought to the feet of Jesus. Some people think that in chapter 44, with this confrontation, that this is the conversion of the brothers because they are so shocked, and they said, we didn't do this, but we are guilty of something else. Robert Murray McShane said, a broken heart alone can receive a crucified Christ. As I was thinking about this the past few days, I thought, what did they know about the Redeemer who would come later? And I wrote down. I said they knew about their father Jacob, they knew about their grandfather Isaac, and their great-grandfather Abraham. They would have known well that their great that their great-grandfather Abraham had taken their grandfather Isaac up to that mountain as God had told him to to sacrifice him. And how at the last moment before he was to be killed, God had provided a substitute, a ram And the the ram had been the substitute that had died in the place of Isaac. They understood. They knew that God will save us through a substitute, the Redeemer who had been promised back earlier, who had come later. And so they would have known all of that. They would have looked ahead. To that Redeemer, that substitute that they would need to cover their sin. Even as now we look back to Christ, the one who is provided as a substitute in our place to die the death that our sin deserves. They would have known that. What are signs of true repentance? And I'd ask you have you repented? The only way to know if repentance is real is not by our words, but is their changed behavior afterward. That is the only way to know. And that is what happens in this text. I find it quite moving. I find it quite emotional what happens from this point on in this chapter. Because notice first their relationship with God has changed. It's transformed. In chapter 42, they said, What is this now God has done to us? When the money was found in their sacks. That was a couple of chapters back. Now it's not in the form of a question, but it's a statement. They say, God has uncovered our sin. They make the direct connection between what was happening to them by the Egyptian prime minister and the fact that it was God that it was doing it. And so they're saying, I surrender. We surrender. God is right. Secondly, we see there's a change in their relationships. There's, a, there's an amazing parallel here now with what happens before the prime minister with exactly what had happened 22 years before. Because they could do it again. They had abandoned their younger brother before. They could abandon their younger brother this time. Before, they were like, well, let's kill him. No, let's throw him in a pit. No, let's sell him. They could have cared less. Now look at them. They have circled the wagons, and they are not going back to their father without their younger brother. They could have run out on him. They could have left Benjamin there, but they're not willing to let him go. There is changed behavior now in these men. And so when Joseph declares that only one, only the one who had stolen the cup should be retained as a slave, Judah, Judah, what had Judah done back when they sold their brother? It was his idea. It was Judah's idea. He was the one. And now... The one who had orchestrated it 22 years before, he's the one that comes up and in verses 33 through 34 says, Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his, fa- with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. What a glorious transformation. He's basically saying over my dead body, You don't think for 22 years he had lived with the remorse of what he had done to his father? In the years I've been a Christian, I have seen repentance not only in my own life but in others when they have come to faith in Christ. I've seen it in this church. I've seen it in other places. People who have paid back unpaid taxes to the government, restitution for stolen goods... Relationships restored where there were decades of bitterness. Couples who were on the edge of divorce restored in their marriage. Individuals who had addictive, the addictive powers of alcohol and drugs and pornography, changed lives from immorality to where they began to treat members of the opposite sex with respect and dignity. Glorious transformation. And that's how you know if repentance has really occurred in your life or in my life. So to me, the transformation, especially in Judah, is just is just profound. Isn't <laughs> I want to read this to you twice. I don't know where this sentence came from, but I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it to try to make it clear. It said, Isn't it amazing that we pursue things in our youth? that we greatly regret later in life once we have experienced the pain and bad consequences which those actions can bring. And Judah says, I'm not going back without Benjamin. And he had been the instigator of the whole thing that had happened 22 years before. Isn't it amazing that we pursue things in our youth that we greatly regret later in life once we have experienced the pain and bad consequences which those actions can bring? Warren Sanny, who's dead now but used to be the president of the Navigators, said, So soon old, so late smart. You got a teenager that's far from God, don't give up and don't dare think the story's over. That person may later be a champion about the very things right now, they may be a champion against the very things now that they willfully participate in. Glorious transformation. Two applications as I wrap this up. If you are trying to run from God and cover your sin and turn aside, do turn aside to his gracious intervention. Today is the day of repentance. Whenever repentance is mentioned in the Bible, there's an urgency about it. It's today. If God is stirring your heart, even today, even believer, not repentance to conversion, but some sin that you recognize and you've just not repented of it. And you know it right now, and we could even put that God has put his probe on it in the past 30 minutes. I would urge you to repent of that today. Today, the urgency. Thomas Fuller said, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. The second application is all of our sins will come to light, either in this world or the next. The question is whether you will answer for your sins or whether someone else will answer for your sins. Will you answer for them? Will you have to pay for them? Or will you accept the payment God has given and cover them with the blood and righteousness of Christ? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me close with the the words of Chuck Colson back from that chapter in Loving God. He said it's not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. He demands, he doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox, where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat and healing through brokenness and finding self through losing self. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you care about each of us.